Welcome to the Policy Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Patrice, writer, political science master's graduate, and dirty martini enthusiast. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking social, political, economic, and environmental issues as they relate specifically to policy from both regional and global perspectives with the simple goal of discussing solutions and systems that put people before politics. Fair warning, sometimes the content is intense and we drop some F-bombs. Thanks for listening in and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to today's show. You are tuning in to the first part of a three-part series where I discuss the relationship between policy and the economy with Dr. Andrew Compton. This show was intended to be a single episode release, but as it turns out, the conversation was flowing and Dr. Compton was willing to give us extra time to answer some really important questions about how common problems are solved, how the economy and policy are related, and answer a slew of listener and reader questions. Had I turned this into a one one episode release, you would have been at this for hours. So I decided to chop it up and make it a little bit more palatable so that you can go on with your day-to-day life and not be listening to your phone for like three hours out of the day. On today's episode, we talk about the basics of the relationship between policy and the economy. And next week, we jump into the burning listener questions. Thanks for being here and enjoy the show. Make sure you listen to the end. You'll get an excerpt of what to expect next week, which I am really excited to get into. All right. So today's guest is Dr. Andrew Compton. He got his PhD in economics from Purdue University and is currently working as a professor of economics, teaching macroeconomics and international economics. I've invited him on the show today to talk about the relationship between economics and policy and to answer some of our common listener questions. So, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So, I have to caveat with, I've known Andrew since my undergraduate. He is one of, like, the smartest people I know. And we originally met each other. We took a couple classes together, and I wrote a few very regrettable, regrettable, op-ed pieces during my undergraduate, which if I ever run for office, I swear to God, I hope those never come up. They will, but, and then I'm going to have to explain that I was in that like process of life where we're discovering what it means to like think for yourself and test out ideas that don't work and have your ideas reformed. And some of those are just very regrettable pieces, but Andrew and I first became acquainted with each other because he publicly... (laughs) publicly oh, responded yeah. to to my pieces and we really we um yeah i got called out specifically on an economic piece that has like no business ever getting pulled back out of the weeds um but then we ended up working together and now we've been friends for like a decade yeah yeah ten years. like 10 years at this point so you know it goes to show that you can meet people who tell you that you're fucking wrong And then make really good friendships with them. So, yeah, I'm happy to have you here. And I've been so lucky because he's actually here in person. He's visiting me from the States here in Germany, which has been so fun for us. Yeah, been a lot of fun here so far. Yeah. Great weather. And great weather. Yeah, March has been surprisingly, surprisingly fun. We've had the opportunity to go kind of around Germany, and we went into Prague, which was really quite fun. So, yeah. Well, 
So we've got a couple questions for you today. They're um, knowing that you are a doctor in economics, some of those like very basic questions, but as this is a resource for people to better understand policy, we're gonna go over a few of those. So first things first, what exactly is the economy? Yeah, so generally speaking, the way I would describe the economy is, how do you want me to start over on that one? Uh, generally speaking, the way I would describe the economy is every transaction that creates some sort of value. So we often talk about a circular flow diagram, which basically says that I buy something from a business or an individual, whoever it might be, um, that gives me value. And then they take what I gave them and they hire, say, a worker. They pay that worker because the business is getting value from the worker. Then the worker takes what they earned and they spend it on things that give them value. That business then hires workers, pays those workers, and so on and so forth. And so anything that really generates value for someone could be considered part of the economy. Okay. Now, in terms of how we actually measure it, uh, we talk a lot about gross domestic product. And the definition of gross domestic product is the market value of all goods and services produced within a year or any given time period right. within a given place. Okay. So in the U.S., we might say gross domestic product is 20, probably 22, $23 trillion. Okay. So that's how much we produced in a year. Um, so that's all quote unquote economic activity. Okay. So we often talk about expenditure equals income. So you can measure it multiple different ways. So one way is to just how much did businesses pay for their inputs? Okay. They hired workers, they hired capital, they rent buildings, for instance, and they pay someone something. And so we could measure that as income, or we could say I, as a consumer, bought something. Let's add up how much I bought. Okay. And that would be what we traditionally think of as the economy. Um, as an economist, we also include home production when we think about the economy. So home production would be, I make food for myself, that generates value for me. It is unmeasurable, Okay. right? But we still consider it an economic activity because you are generating value, but it's like you're paying yourself almost. Right. Okay. Um, but it is going to have an effect on the wider economy because if I make food for myself, then I am not paying someone else to do it. Okay. So it's not measurable, but it theoretically could be measurable. And if I made a different decision, then it would show up in our measure of the economy. Okay. Right. So it would show up as gross domestic product if I go out to eat okay, or if I hired a personal chef. Okay. 
So we still think about those things, that home production, yeah. even though it's not measurable, because we know that people can substitute between the non-measurable activity and the measurable activity. So the economy is essentially what it means to assess value. Can you can you explain that a little yeah, bit further? A little bit further. So when we're considering, um, we've and you may be further explaining this to me because um, we, as we've talked even this week, we've been talking a lot about um, policy and its relationship to the economy. And one of the one of my Achilles heels that I've even mentioned is like. I understand the creation of policy, but I don't necessarily know what that means in relationship to the economy, which is like essential to policy development. It's my Achilles heel. But when we're looking at the economy, we're assessing. So you'll have to, again, explain this to me, but like we are assessing value. Some of it is measurable. Some of it, some of it is not. But value that we've created, value that we've received, received value that we've and that can be very internal to our home, like you talked about, like cooking for yourself, um, which we can't measure. But when we're looking at the economy as a whole, it, it we are assessing value in terms of just in general or just in terms of its relationship to money or in terms to tr- tradable goods. We're assessing. So an economist, as an economist, we tend not to think about what we call nominal GDP, okay. which is gross domestic product in terms of money. Okay. We would rather know what is gross domestic product in terms of goods and services. Okay. How much stuff okay. or services did we produce? Okay. The easiest way to measure that is, well, you know, I paid $10. Right, right, right. So that, to me, it was worth $10. Okay. But fundamentally, what I care about is, $10 buys me that thing, but what else could I have spent it on? Okay. Right? So I care about the relationship between the value of two different goods and services. Okay. Or a good and my labor. Okay. Not how much is it worth in dollars. Dollars isn't as important to us okay. as those tangible things. Right. Or potentially intangible. Right? Um, so I care about goods and services, I care about labor, I care about capital and their relationship to each other. Okay. I don't so much care about money. Okay, so if we were to put this in like very layman's terms for our listeners, I care about my income because of what that income can generate for me in relationship to the things that I want, the lifestyle I want to live, the services I want access to. If I'm making $10 an hour, that can make some of, you know, a really nice computer very unattainable. But if I'm making, once you break down a salary, maybe $50 an hour, that's less unattainable. So I'm looking not necessarily at what that, what the actual dollar amount is, but what that means to my ability to access the way in which I'd like to live in relationship to the system I'm, I'm plugged into. Yeah. So we would talk about what we call the real wage. And the real wage is essentially saying, what is my labor, what is an hour of work mm-hmm. worth in terms of what I can buy with that right. hour of work? Right. So I teach my students that, you know, if I get paid $10 an hour and a bag of goldfish costs 
then my labor is worth 2.5 bags of goldfish. Okay. If I make $50 an hour, now my labor is worth, uh, I picked a really bad number for that, <laughs> uh, 22.5 bags of goldfish. Okay. No, 12.5 bags. Not Math. Important, not important. Not yeah, important. This, yeah um, we got it. <laughs> but it's worth more goldfish. Now suppose I make $50 an hour, but the price of bag, uh, a price of a bag of goldfish went up to $20. Okay. Now my labor is still worth two and a half bags of goldfish. So whether my, la- my, my wage was 50 or 10, uh-huh. in terms of goldfish, it's the same. Yeah. So the dollar amount isn't relevant in this case. Okay. Because the price went up for both. Yeah. What shifted was the relationship. Well, the relationship didn't shift. Okay. In the first example, it did. Okay. Right? Okay. Okay. My yeah, labor yeah, yeah. was worth more in yep. terms of goldfish. Yep. So the relationship between them changed. Yeah. But in the second example where both go up in price, yep. the it's relationship the, yeah. is the same. Yep. Okay. Nothing, nothing changed. Right. So when we talk about gross domestic product, we care about real gross domestic product because our concern is that the economy will look like it's growing, uh-huh. but all that's really happening is that prices are going up. Okay. Things are becoming more expensive. Okay. But you're not consuming more. Right. Right. And I know consumption isn't necessarily happiness. Yeah. But it is correlated. Okay. So on average, if we're able to consume more stuff, right, whatever that stuff might be, yeah, we would say we're better off. Right. Um, but if it just because prices are going up, we are exactly as well off as we were before. Okay. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, and like that conversation is such an important one, especially when we're looking at, you know, dealing with some of these, like, I mean, we've, and this has been such a good segue because we are going to get into the conversation of inflation because that was a common question that we got asked. Um, But it's such an important question, especially when we're looking at like, how do we deal with some of these societal problems that we've got people, you know, on both sides of the aisle debating, we've got people arguing in the streets about, you know, we've got a lot of inflammatory information about. So, you know, understanding that relationship is so essential to addressing most of the policies that we want to see addressed that we know aren't working, that are failing, that people are have strong opinions on. So that that leads us to my next question. Um, how is the economy and policy related? How, how do these have a relationship? So as an economist, policy is economics. Okay. Um, the process of policy is more political science. Right. But at the end of the day, when you create a policy, what you're essentially doing is changing people's incentives. Okay. In order to create some end goal, okay. you have to get people to do something different. Okay. Because currently they're doing things their way. Yep. And it's leading to an outcome that maybe we don't like or maybe we want more of it. Right. So we're going to try and get people to change their behavior to achieve that objective. Right. Well, anytime you change people's behavior, that is economics. Economics, we care about 
what are people doing with the resources they have available? Why do they make the decisions they do? What is their guiding incentive? If we change those incentives, they change their behavior. So what would be an example of a policy that maybe you wouldn't think of as being economics? Can you oh. think of any, Taylor? Oh. Target put you on the spot. <laughs> um, oh, that's... Um, I, the first one that my head goes to, like, I'm like kind of scrolling through my head here and I, I'm trying to avoid some of the inflammatory ones. Um, I was going to go with abortion, but we'll, well, well, can we use that one? Yeah. Okay. Let's use that one. (laughs) Um, so if we think about abortion policy, one of them is a requirement that it's, it's like a mandatory waiting period. Okay. Right. So you go to the abortion provider, you have an appointment, they counsel you, and they set up the abortion itself, the yep. actual procedure, uh, or just giving you medication that will induce abortion. But then you have to wait 24, 48, 72 hours. Okay. That creates an economic cost. Okay. Because now, just going to the appointment itself is time. It requires time. Okay. Now this policy is requiring even more of your time, which means you can't take care of your kids if you have them already. You can't work for those 24, 48, 72 hours. You have to get transportation to and from. That might require that someone take time out of their day right. that they could have used for some other activity right. that generated value for them. Right. So you are taking 24 hours from someone and saying that is the cost of getting of this, an abortion. This procedure. And you're going to have to pay that. It's not a monetary cost, but it is a cost in terms of you could do something else that would generate value for you. So right? essentially, and I don't want to cut you off, I'm just I'm having a thought here. So when we're looking at states, for instance, that are banning abortion essentially what they're doing is changing the incentive because for someone who very well might want this procedure they now instead of being able to go down the street to their local clinic now have to consider that i have to cross a state line there may be some sort of like penalty for having this procedure that they may face the penalties of whether it be monetary or jail time in some states They then have to find lodging in that other state. They have to pay for gas. And if we're looking at people of various socioeconomic positions, that incentive has then changed because that may not be something that they can do or see the value in doing. And they've done this in such a way so that it produces a specific outcome that the politician, the party, the state, the voters, whatever it is, want to see happen. Yeah. So the goal is to, if you're implementing these policies to try and restrict abortion, The goal is to achieve less abortion, Uh and the way you can do that is by imposing some cost of getting an abortion. Interesting. So that is an effective policy. Okay. Then you can get into debates about... Second and third order effects. Yeah. And and then you can get into, you know, philosophy and ethics and all that stuff. All the things, yeah. And economists... You know, I'm not going to talk about that. Right, right, right. That becomes Um, a very extensive conversation. Yeah, But purely as economic policy, it does, it is an economic policy at the end of the day. Okay. Um, Because the way that we achieve the goal is by imposing cost. Okay. Right. 
Um, you also have to consider, well, you know, economists will also think about substitution. Okay. So maybe more people will utilize plan B. Okay. Maybe people will go underground and get an abortion through who knows what. Yeah. Right. That's happened in the past. Yeah. Um, it's happened in countries that have banned abortion entirely. Yeah. People go underground. Yeah. But then you have to weigh the risk internally. If I go underground, what are the health complications that could happen? Right. Is that worth it right. for me? Right. Um, so at the end of the day, you're making a decision yeah. about your life. And an economist cares about those decisions and what the incentives are and what the trade-offs you face are. So we don't yeah. just care about money. We care about people's decision-making. And that is why this week, like spending some time together, especially after like all of the years that we've had apart has been so interesting. I mean, you know, I've, we've all got our opinions about Amazon, but living in Germany for me to access English books, I have to use Amazon. And so, I mean, I literally handed Andrew my, my phone and was like, put all the economics books I need into my Amazon cart and then just like hit send. Because these were things that like, as a person who's come from the political science background, I know how it's formed. I understand sort of the incentive building process, but not having that fundamental understanding of the economy, which I think is a very, um, for a lot of people, it feels very unapproachable. It feels very big. Yeah, but I would say if you have an understanding of incentives, yeah, you're in a good position. Yeah. Because most of like the economic theory that you learn, yeah, a lot of it is just, at least early on, it mostly accounting and um, terminology. Yeah, okay. And then when you get further along, most of it is incentives. Cause and effect. Cause and effect. Yep. And if you understand that, you understand economics at the end of the day. Um, the students who struggle are the ones who can't think through a problem mm -hmm. and think about the incentives for various parties in whatever market we're talking about. Okay. Um, so they struggle because they can't put themselves in that space to think about how would someone else respond right. to this incentive? Because they really only think about themselves. That's what they're used to thinking about. Okay. Um, and they may not have the perspective. They may not have the experience of being in that other person's position. Right. So a lot of them struggle with you know, thinking about workers right. and their incentives because, you know, a lot of them have never had a job. Right. right, right, you know, they, right. Don't, they don't know what's what it's like to balance through. all of the things that they're balancing because yeah. we all have, there's so much nuance that goes into people's decision making. Um, Plus they're college students, so they're not really exposed to the real world. Right. That's why, I mean, going back to the, 401k they don't have any of that. I mean, yeah. that's literally why some of these like pieces, if they ever come back up are so regrettable because I did not know what the <laughs> fuck I was talking about. Right. To be fair, sometimes I didn't know either. Yeah. So. I mean, cause we were all figuring it out at that age. And I mean, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a really important process to go through. Like, oh man, that doesn't work. Let's and nix that, that idea. That's an important part of living a college education, a liberal yeah. arts education. Yeah. Of any education. Yeah. Is yeah. weeding out our thoughts and. Well, especially at college is the free discourse is right. very important. It's it's very, um, 
not monitored. It's um, like you kind of have, you've got a teacher who's like can kind of facilitate those conversations. Yeah. Because when we take these conversations out into the real world, it's like part of the reason we've got so many people swinging so heavily left and then so heavily right. And it's so aggressive because there's really no like neutral discourse or someone helping to facilitate these ideas and being like, here's why these don't work. Here's why this doesn't work. Well, and people get to choose. Right. Who they listen to, who they talk to. Right. Um, whereas in college, sorry guys, I know we live in the U.S. and we don't like <laughs> Marxism, but let's talk about Marxism. Right. Right. It's right. part of life. Right. Absolutely. Oh. It's still going. It's no, just... <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, and I think that that's one of the beautiful things about, you know, having the ability to have, for people to have those ideas discussed, challenged. Especially in your formative years. Yeah. Absolutely. Your brain is still malleable. Yeah. Uh, still mushy. Yeah. Still open to change. Yeah. Doesn't really <laughs> settle down to your like in your late twenties. Yeah. And that I mean and when people you know, when people used to tell me that when I was young, um, because we do actually have a lot of young listeners who plug into this, when people used to tell me that, I was like indignant. <laughs> I was like very righteous and I was like, no, that is inaccurate. And then I got to like 27 and was like, oh, I now know what I believe. And I also know that I know nothing about anything. And so it's a very humbling experience to grow up. (laughs) Well, if you ever want to learn, you know, nothing, go to grad school. Oh, I know. And that's, I mean, we were, we were giggling about this on the couch last night. Like I went to college to learn. I went to grad school to pay to learn that I know nothing. And Andrew has gone on and to... And you get to go to college. You get to go get your doctorate, and they will pay you to learn you know nothing. Yeah, uh, so it's just a lot of knowing nothing. <laughs> uh, and then you build yourself back up over time. Yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's been good. Um, so you've kind of answered this, but I want to make sure that we've actually gotten the full answer in case I didn't ask this accurately. But why is the relationship between the economy and, and policy important? I mean, I feel like we've kind of answered that. But I did want to ask, so we used a very um, inflammatory example. Yeah. Um, abortion is, it's like, it's one of those hot topics that, like, I know that I'm going to have listeners who are going to listen to that, and they're going to be like, but I feel this way. Yeah. You know, because so many of the decisions that we're making are shaped by how we feel, not by looking at the outcome we want and then observing how do we create that outcome most effectively without having some of these like offshoot, like second, third order effects that can be argued, but like separate issue. Yeah. Um, how, what, what about if looking at something like transportation or infrastructure? How is that related to the economy? Yeah. So transportation and infrastructure. So infrastructure in general, the sole purpose is to facilitate the movement of people and goods and services. Okay. So it makes it cheaper, effectively. You're not actually like paying a cost, but if you think about maybe your time, mm-hmm. if I can take a nice smooth road, I will get I will get to my destination faster. If it's really bumpy and janky and it you know it's like a gravel road, yeah, I might have to go slower. You're right. And so I'm not going to get to my destination as fast. Okay. What that means is that it's effectively more expensive to drive to my destination because that time could have been used for something else. I have given up what I could have done with that time. So transportation means we give up less, Mm -hmm. like effective transportation policy means that we give up less in order to get to our destination. It is less expensive 
in a way, in right. terms of other things. Not in terms of monetary value, but in terms of right other things that would have given us value. So transportation policy is really important and having good infrastructure is really important because it decreases those costs. Okay. Now we can also get into questions about say we want to decrease the cost of getting somewhere and in the U.S. traditionally that means building more roads okay. or expanding highways. But the problem is that if you make it cheaper to use them by expanding them or making them better, uh -huh. more people will switch to them and you get, you know, even though you theoretically are getting rid of the congestion, it's really only temporary because you decrease the cost and more people will use it now. And then you've got congestion all over again. Yeah. And then you just keep going down this rabbit hole. Right. Whereas more effective from an economist perspective would be to invest in other things. Okay. Around highways. Right. So bus systems, light rail, heavy rail, you know, whatever you want it to be. Right. Um, whatever bike method path, works. Bike path. Yeah. yeah. Give people options that will actually reduce congestion. Interesting. Okay. Right? Because you're making all forms of transportation cheaper. Okay. And people get to choose. People have a choice. Um, and that would reduce congestion on roads. Because okay. now, instead of driving, I can ride my bike. Right. I can walk. I can take the train. I can do something else. Right. That gives me more value. Right. Whereas if we're all relying on highways, you're effectively taking away opportunity. Right. Okay. Right. You're forcing people, essentially... So I think there's a term for it. It's like it's like constrained choice. Okay. Right. You have a choice about how you get to your destination, but effectively in the U.S. you don't. Right. You have to. You're go. very limited. Like you're kind of pigeonholed into a yeah. specific decision. It's like you can walk if you want. It could be really freaking dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you can do it. You can it's do a it. It's choice. Yeah. Quote unquote. I right. I can't do. Air quotes. Can't yeah. do air quotes. They can't see your hands. <laughs> but like, yeah, it, it's a choice. Right. Quote unquote. Yeah. But effectively for a lot of people, it's not. Right. And so, you know, you, you observe during the pandemic, um, a lot of people were buying cars and there was a shortage of cars. Right. Because of the chip shortage. So... It became harder and harder for people who need a car to find a car. Right. And if there's no new cars, or there are fewer new cars, then fewer cars are going to end up on the used market, which means that used cars become more expensive. Right. And fewer people wanted to use the bus because they didn't yeah. want to be around other people. Germs. So that means people are more reliant on cars which means they need cars. Yep. So used cars go up in price by like $6,000 over the course of one year. Right. And that's why we look at this and we're like, what the heck is happening? But it has an explanation. And as you're talking about like roads, you know, I'm, what's kind of going through my head over here is like, I'm thinking, I, you know, I'm, I was born in Los Angeles. I've got family in Los Angeles. I was brought up on the West Coast, effectively, kind of between, like, my family lived in Washington State. I went to school there, but I went back and forth with my grandparents. So I've spent a lot of time in Los Angeles. And as you're talking about infrastructure, I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, 
I've got some users in California or listeners in California who are like, oh, I can totally relate and understand what you're saying. But then I'm thinking of like the issue of primacy, right? Because like, if I have a listener as a person, like I've lived in Missouri, I lived there for three and a half years, someone who's in Missouri listening to this can't necessarily relate or understand why like, wait, why is roads, why is this such a big issue? Because they're not sitting in California traffic trying to go five miles down the road and being in the car for an hour and a half. Yeah. Then you like kind of flip the conversation and you've got people in California who can't understand why these people in Missouri may not necessarily care, but they don't have congestion. I've lived there. It's a dirt road. And then yeah. like one arterial that has zero congestion ever unless there's been an accident. And so, you know, in Missouri, their primary problem, their primary voter doesn't have to consider some of these issues because regionally they're not affected by the same thing. Their issue maybe more looking at drug control or looking at any number of other policies or improving infrastructure and access to um, hospitals. That's a big issue. Like so many people live so far away from medical care, they can't get adequate medical care or looking at things like, you know, what is their wage and, and some of those different policies. And so I think that that's why this conversation is so valuable is like we are... When we look at the economy, we are assessing, we're looking at value and how people, there's so much nuance that goes into assessing value based on how it is you interact with the world, yeah. right? And different policies are going to have differential effects on different people. That is, yeah. by the nature of policy, there is effectively no policy that affects everyone the same. Universally. It's yeah. not a blanket. Yeah. So, yes. Someone in rural Missouri, roads are perfectly fine. Right. Like, that's how they get around. They don't understand necessarily that, for some of us, congestion is a real problem. Right. But they should also be able to recognize that, as someone living in the city, I don't necessarily understand... I couldn't... Maybe don't necessarily understand why we are building all these roads... Right. ...in this rural area to support 10 people. Right, right, right. But that's the nature of transportation policy. Right. We're trying to lower the cost for everyone. Right. If that means that maybe we need to look into bike paths, light rail, heavy rail, etc., then we should do that in the city. But then we should also recognize that there are dirt roads in America. Right. Should we consider whether or not to pave them because that will also reduce the cost for those people. Right. Right. That's the end goal of transportation policy is to decrease the cost of transportation. Right. And to like look at how people relate to the decisions that are being made and how that affects their life and how they can then add value. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, we ask that you leave a positive rating wherever it is that you listen into your podcasts. Here is an excerpt from next week's episode. So because it looks good to them, they're willing now to tackle inflation. Okay. Because typically during a pandemic, or sorry, uh, any form of recession. Okay. So anytime the market or the economy is doing poorly. Right. They target low unemployment. They try to increase output, which increases employment to make workers' lives easier. Okay. That could come with inflation. 